Hello everyone, this is Dr. Garana. Welcome to my podcast. Allow me to guide you through the topics about hair loss, hair restoration, hair therapy, hair science, and hair industry with the world's greatest experts. This is Hair on Air. Hello, hello. Welcome to episode five, five Hair on Air podcast. Um, thank you all for all support that I'm getting and for interesting topic, the topics that you're suggesting that I certainly am going to cover in one of the next episodes. Uh, now it's time to talk about female hair loss, and this is going to be the first in a, in a list of series uh, that we're going to be discussing hair loss in women. Um, I have really great uh, pleasure to host my first female uh, guest, a doctor and a colleague that I highly respect and look up to, Nicole Rogers. Uh, Nicole uh, graduated from Harvard University with honors and then she uh, went to medical school to Tulane University where she serves as assistant professor at the Department of Dermatology. Uh, she is a fellowship-trained tr uh, uh, hair restoration surgeon and also a board-certified dermatologist. Uh, Nicole uh, publishes on a regular basis. She presents her work on different meetings of different societies, uh, and she's a member of a, very, of a variety of uh, hair restoration societies, including the Psychiatrical Foundation Research Society. So today, welcoming Nicole, welcome to Hair and Air. Well, thank you, Dr. Kuka Epstein. It's a pleasure to be here with you and the feeling is mutual. I have so much respect for you and all of your achievements and it's just uh, such a pleasure to share this platform with you. So thank you for the invitation. You are most welcome. Um, I have to be honest with you, part of uh, me wanting you to be my female um, guest is that maybe you can help me with current condition that I have that we are going to be talking about today and I'd like to pick up your mind uh, how would you help some female patients going through what I'm going currently but so let's talk about female hair loss how often do you see women in your office losing hair um, pretty much every day, multiple times per day. <laughs> and it's very distressing, you know, no matter what, no matter whether it's a, a young woman who is in her early teens or, you know, we have women who are in their 80s and their 90s who are noticing hair thinning or hair loss. So, you know, it, I think it is distressing to women of any age and um, any part of the country, probably any place in the world, you know, where, where this is happening. Yes. I read, uh, I, I started as a hair transplant surgeon and then I slowly shifted to hair loss therapist and I am surprised how many women are dealing with hair loss of different etiology. And it is definitely, per definition, it says 40% of women at the age of 40 suffer from hair loss, which is a huge number. Exactly, it is. And I think it's sort of the involuntary component to it that's so so distressing. You know, um, some women, when they come in, they have an idea of why they think it's happening. Um, you know, but I think for a lot of women, they just don't know. They're just not sure. And so they're really looking to us 
for guidance, for, you know, reassurance, maybe to tell them, okay, this is just temporary, you're going to get through this. Um, you know, in fact, I think the majority of women are hoping that we will give them, you know, um, some reassurance that, you know, this is just a weird one-time thing and that it's going to stop. And, and so, you know, sometimes the hardest part is figuring out, is this in fact temporary or could it be early female pattern thinning? You know, and I, I know that's going to be a, a topic for another day, but, you know, sometimes that, that is part of the mystery of unraveling the difference between those two. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to discuss it uh, definitely today uh, because many of them think, think there is only one type of hair loss. And in reality, we have a list of hair loss that we uh, diagnose and treat in a different manner. So that's why the essence is a good diagnosis to begin with. And then we know we can name the condition and treat it. Um, I would like to focus today on active shedding. So when a female patient comes to you and she says she's actively shedding, she's losing a lot of hair, where your mind goes then? What are you start thinking that the reason is. Right. So part of our intake process is that we, you know, basically ask our patients to tell, tell us their story. And usually there's a component of when did the shedding begin, you know, and so was it in the last three months, six months, one year? And then we like to ask them what other major events are going on in their life. You know, so um, the, the, the major, the question being, was there a major physiologic stressor? Okay. And, you know, um, here in New Orleans, obviously, you know, we're always stressed by things like hurricanes and flooding and that kind of thing. But, you know, the bigger issue is, did you have a baby recently? You know, because we know, for instance, that childbirth is the most common cause of telogen effluvium which is the temporary shedding. And, and part of the reason for that is that the hairs, while a woman is pregnant during those nine months, they go into a suspended resting phase. And so what happens is that all the hairs that they should have shed during that nine month period, they don't, they actually hold on to. So their hair looks thick and beautiful and lovely during the uh, entirety of their pregnancy. Um, but then unfortunately it all sort of sheds at once, usually three to six months after that baby is born. So it can yeah. be, you know, very distressing. And I think, you know, as we talk about it more, I think women are better prepared for that to, to happen. And I don't think they panic quite so much after the fact. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, for women who come in asking, how can I prevent this? You know, it's still kind of hard for us to really say, oh, sure, just take this vitamin or use minoxidil. You know, I don't think there's really any good way to actually prevent it from happening. Yep. Um, it is funny that you said this, but um, I do educate my patients about, you know, possibility of shedding after pregnancy. And I myself am a hair doctor and I'm currently shedding because I had a baby four and a half months ago. And it's really a distressing thing in my life because I, uh, I have great hair and now it's just shedding and shedding and shedding and I'm leaving layers of hair. You can, from a personal experience, you cannot 
get yourself ready for that. You can't, absolutely. Um, apart from pregnancy, what is what are other possible triggers of telogen effluvium, the condition that we call this acute shedding? Right. Um, so probably next on the list is very severe illnesses. So for instance, you know, <clears throat> people who undergo, um, maybe they had a high fever, maybe they had a prolonged illness. You know, COVID has been in the news a lot recently as a cause of major physiologic stressor. And there've been numerous reports in the medical literature of um, patients who developed massive hair shedding. And it's usually that same timeline, approximately three to six months after that you know, major um, illness. Um, the other things that we see are um, rapid weight loss. So the building that we're in, we have a, a bariatric clinic upstairs. And it's kind of funny because we'll have patients who, you know, maybe get um, a procedure done to limit their food intake and they may drop 80 pounds over, you know, just a few short months. And so, you know, it's not uncommon for us to see uh, patients who have developed massive hair shedding from that situation. Um, you know, I, I tell them you lose weight, you lose hair. Right, exactly. I mean, you like to think that if it's done in a very slow, controlled fashion, that they won't have hair loss. But I don't yeah. know. I, I, you tell me your experience. I feel like even when it's sort of slow and controlled, still people can have some hair loss. Mine is too. I always stress out what type of diet are they uh, doing because they have to be covered with a good intake of protein. Uh, to control iron, ferritin, vitamin D level, uh, have good supplementation, not just vitamins, but minerals. I found very important that they're low in zinc, low in magnesium. Um, some have high metals in their body. So I feel they're not, they're taking that, that weight loss lightly. That really has to be planned um, carefully so they don't face this issue with with hair um, and, and, once, um, and once in a while there are cases of you know obviously what we call chronic telogen effluvium where you know young women who maybe are anorexic or bulimic like you know they just they are so thin you know and you know we fuss at them because they come in and they're chronically having their hair coming out their hair is shedding and, you know, sometimes for those women, the only real way to get that addressed is to actually put some weight on. Yep. What about, have you seen the connection between certain medications and telogen effluvium? Well, you know, it's interesting because if you look back, you know, decades in the medical literature, you'll see that there's a link with numerous cardiovascular medications such as um, warfarin, uh, certain beta blockers have been linked, um, and you know certain uh, other anti-hypertensive medications. And the thing that's interesting, if you actually dig a little bit deeper, you'll notice that there's um, a correlation between the same people who are genetically prone to hair loss and also genetically prone to cardiovascular disease. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not always totally convinced about that link with cardiovascular drugs because I think there may be a little bit of a confounding factor. I think, you know, those are actually people who have maybe early male or female pattern hair loss who are, right. are possibly pinning it on that 
you know, blood pressure medication. But, um, but those reports do exist in the medical literature. And I've also seen um, a, a link with a particular statin um, <laughs> medication. So even high cholesterol drugs, you know, could cause it. The thing I tell my patients is that almost any medication can have almost any side effect, you know, and, and so mm-hmm. often, you know, if, if they look in the list of side effects from, for that package insert for that drug, they'll see alopecia. Yes. You know, um, before I focused on hair loss, I, w- I did a lot of general dermatology and we would prescribe a lot of Accutane. And Accutane, which is a vitamin A derivative, has been linked in the medical literature with hair, temporary hair shedding. But um, yeah. I, I tell you, I didn't really see it that often. You know, I, I know it's been reported. Um, you know, I, I kind of wonder if maybe it's something that we see in people who are genetically prone to develop male or female pattern hair loss later anyway. You know, could it possibly mm-hmm. unmask a male or female pattern hair loss? But you know, I, I never really saw that many cases of like frank hair shedding as a result of Accutane usage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you said at the beginning of the conversation, some patients know what is causing hair loss and some have no clue. But when you take a, a detailed medical history and you tell them, aha, uh-huh, you're taking AC inhibitor, this is this could be one of the, 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 the reasons why you're losing hair. Then, then they have an aha moment. I never thought of that. Um, and also, for example, patients with thyroid issues, we know those can uh, uh, have uh, hair loss, but also medications for thyroid uh, hypothyroidism uh, can cause hair loss. So we're sort of we can tell them to stop medications, obviously, for another reason, but just the awareness that that's a contributing factor to, to chronic telogen effluvium, probably. Um, and, um, and actually, just to follow up with what you were just saying about thyroid, I feel like that can be such a, a muddy, murky area. Um, you know, because, you know, I, I like seeing patients like in a perfect world, they're, you know, seeing a board certified endocrinologist who's regularly checking their thyroid every six months and who's using a drug like Synthroid, you know, which is very accurate and specific and good at like controlling, you know, strictly controlling the thyroid function. Um, because where I go off the rails sometimes is with patients who maybe are seeing, um, you know, doctors who are using desiccated pig thyroid and they don't get as tight a control over their thyroid function. And then especially Mm -hmm. if they're not checking their thyroid on a regular basis. The other thing that can alter thyroid test results is if they're supplementing with biotin. You know, the FDA had issued that warning a few years ago that high dose biotin supplementation, which unfortunately everybody wants to take the minute they get hair loss, um, will alter thyroid test results. And so patients have to get off the biotin, preferably for a week before they get any kind of thyroid testing done in order to get an accurate outcome. Yeah. What is that with biotin? Because uh, I read, li- re- not recently, uh, a few years, few months back, publication about vitamins for, for hair loss. And even that publication said there is no relevant clinical study that says that biotin helps with hair loss. But every single patient 
When I mention, are you taking any supplementation? Of course I'm taking biotin, tons of biotin. What is, is your opinion the same? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've seen some old studies showing that, you know, babe infants, right, who were biotin deficient or who, whose bodies were unable to manufacture biotin could develop some hair loss. But how that spawned into this sort of like widely held, like strong belief that biotin will help you regrow your hair, I have no idea. And, yep. and so, yeah, it drives me crazy. Sounds like it drives mm -hmm. both of us crazy. Yeah, obviously, but everyone, everyone, even, even when I do, when I do topical uh, compounding lotion, my patients are, please put some biotin in there. I'm like, but why? I, 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 no, and no. you can't fight it. It's hard to fight it. Right, um, I know. So what I wanted to, uh, if you can explain to those who are listening, what is happening when patient is coming and shedding actively. What's physiologically happening in the in the hair cycle? Sure. So, you know, the hair cycle is so complicated and there's, you know, so many different signaling mechanisms and cytokines and you know, I, I would be I would I would be lying if I admitted to understanding every little aspect of the hair growth cycle, but you know, my best understanding is that the hair has finished the actively growing phase um, or its growth phase has been cut short by some major stressor like we talked about. And so the hairs, with at least with telogen effluvium, are just kind of waiting until it's time to come out or they're being pushed out by new hairs that are replacing them. You know, there's also there's also what's called antigen effluvium, which is where people receive a chemotherapeutic drug, which acutely abruptly cuts short the hair follicle growth cycle and push and the hairs actually come out at the same time. So that's a little bit different from the telogen effluvium. Telogen effluvium always has this, you know, three month time lag that you know, makes it a little bit harder. I always tell my patients, it's kind of like driving a big ship down the Mississippi River, you know, here we are in New Orleans. So, you know, they understand that concept that like, it just takes time, you know, whatever change has happened a while ago, we're, we're just now seeing the effects of it, you know, several months later. And so yes. we really have to think and investigate, you know, what happened in the past and how we can, you know, resolve that or correct that. Yeah. Um, it really became popular uh, during the last year of year of COVID when patients started shedding after COVID, and that's when it, when uh, we in hair community started discussing more as a new symptom of COVID is hair loss, which happens exactly in that time frame you you are talking about. So how does a patient present to you? She she comes to the office and. Typically, what I'm doing right now, and this is what I'm telling all my patients not to do, but I'm doing this all the time, you know, just pulling my tail and like counting hairs. And I tell my patients, please do not focus, just move your mind of it, but I'm doing it too. So besides doing that all the time, how you clinically um, uh, define telogen effluvium? Is there something that patient can look on their hair for? and say, okay, it could be a telogen effluvium. Well, what you're describing, you know, pulling the ponytail, that, that actually is something that we use as a, an examination criteria, right? It's called the pull test. 
you know, and it's, you know, basically where we grab a a grouping of usually between five and 10 hairs and we just pull very kind of firmly and gently away from the scalp. And then we want to count how many of those, you know, come out in our hand. Um, I think it's important to differentiate between telogen effluvium and breakage because Mm -hmm. uh, so many women nowadays are really over-processing their hair. And it's usually a combination of things like either chemical relaxers, um, heat, uh, flat irons, and um, also highlights, you know. So in uh, women of Caucasian ancestry, it seems like we're seeing a lot of they, what seems like telogen effluvium on the initial presentation. They say, Doc, my hair's coming out. It's everywhere. It's all over my bathroom floor, you know. And then on closer inspection, wow, they have you know, tons of hairs that are breaking off at different levels, you know, going anywhere from close to the scalp to the bottom of their hair. Yeah. So, um, so, so when we do the initial examination, I use a lot of dermoscopy where we're looking uh, under high power microscope at the scalp and we're assessing, and usually with classic telogen effluvium, the hair shaft diameter is the same. It's uniform across the board, right? Because the hairs are just entering a resting phase and they're coming out. Um, Sometimes you can see short regrowing hairs and that, you know, is usually when the telogen effluvium is starting to get into the recovery phase. But sometimes you don't see that at the very beginning. So it's not necessarily a marker for sure. Um, With early female pattern hair loss, there's more variation in the hair caliber. So, and those, those patients can present with telogen effluvium, but in the context of early female pattern hair loss. So, you know, they may have a massive positive pull test when you, when you yank on the hairs, but then when you look at them dermatoscopically, you're still going to see that variation in uh, hair caliber, which points toward early miniaturization. And those patients are usually also going to have a family history of hair loss. So, you know, you can spend yes. you can spend a long time, you know, talking about thyroid and hormones and medications. And, you know, um, if you ask them early on in the interview, you know, about their family history, you know, I, I think sometimes it can save you a lot of time, you know, because they may yeah. say, oh, my twin sister wears a wig or my dad was bald or, you know, my brother shaves his head or, you know. And, and yep. sometimes I think it kind of helps you arrive at that diagnosis of female pattern hair loss a little bit earlier. It is so critical that, that discussion with a patient because, and, and, and our female patients should know that uh, just to be asked the right questions because not every hair loss is the same. There is so many variation of it and, and so many factors that can contribute. That's why it shouldn't be taken so lightly. Um, My consultation for women is so much different than a consultation for a male patient, you know, because this is really putting all the pieces of a puzzle together. And I love it because it's not easy. It's not. Um, And and the treatment sometimes, in many cases, not easy, but we're going to talk about that. But just to find the reason why one is losing hair, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, do you look like, um, so when we have uh, androgenic alopecia, there is some sort of hair appearance that we 
kind of recognize and we can tell, okay, this is most likely androgenic alopecia. How about for telogen effluvium? Do you look for signs like frontotemporal recessions? Do you measure the dearth of the ponytail? Or, or, or is there anything that you like search for or no? Well, like I said, if, if I see a fairly um, uniform caliber of hairs on dermoscopy, you know, mm -hmm. and especially if I see those short regrowing hairs, you know, they may just mm -hmm. be a few millimeters long. Um, then that's usually a pretty good indicator. But sometimes you have to do a scalp biopsy, you know, and, yep. and, and we do that here in the office. It usually takes about five or 10 minutes. We use a little lidocaine just to, you know, gently anesthetize the part of the scalp that we're going to sample. And then we use a little four millimeter punch. You know, it's basically like this or like mm -hmm. this. It's about this big. So we just sample a little piece of hair bearing scalp. And then we just put a suture in there just to bring the skin edge together and we send that specimen to the pathologist and they're able to look very carefully under the microscope and they can actually count the ratio of terminal to uh, vellus hair, so, so thick hairs to finer hairs. And then they can sometimes also look at the, the, height, the length and the depth of the follicles in order to see if more of them are actually in the telogen or resting phase. Yes, and I, 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 I bet you have a good pathologist because that's also a critical link to have a good pathologist who's gonna read the, 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 the result well. Um, and, and also it could be a combination of, of, for example, a woman suffering for years of androgenic alopecia and then experience shedding. So it could be a combination of, of the two. Right. And it's frequently a combination. It is. It is. Because what we didn't even really talk about is, you know, the various um, types of scalp dermatitis that can complicate the picture. So, you know, if a woman is also prone to say psoriasis, you know, she may present with diffuse, uh, dry, flaking, scaling, you know, either throughout the entire scalp or sometimes it's more just in the occipital distribution, you know, and if it's really uncontrolled, that can also cause hair loss. Sometimes my, yep. pa my pathologist will use the term psoriatic alopecia to describe, you know, shedding in the context of this uncontrolled dermatitis. Um, SIBO psoriasis, you know, that's kind of a combination between seborrheic dermatitis and psoriasis. That can also result in diffuse hair shedding if it's not well controlled because there's just so much inflammation there. You know, yeah. and then obviously, you know, the the cicatricial alopecias like lichen planopilaris and frontal fibrosing alopecia and um, in our women of African descent, central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, you know, those can also present with hair shedding in the early stages yeah. because they haven't been addressed. They're not getting any medical therapy for that underlying inflammation. So, of course, they're having massive hair shedding. Yeah. Yeah, I, I say the essence, the basis of healthy hair is healthy scalp uh, to begin, begin with. Sometimes I put the dermoscope and I see the scalp is burning of, of inflammation. And when a patient said that uh, she has been seen by someone for her hair loss and I ask if dermoscopy has been done and she says no and then I say well you haven't really been seen for your hair loss because I said the dermoscope is stethoscope for us 
It is. It tells us so much. It does. And it's and it's nice because it's non-invasive and but but I think it's still up to the the eye of the beholder, you know. I think you know, even even if you own a dermatoscope, you know, you still kind of have a little bit of you need a little bit of experience in terms of you yeah. know knowing what you're looking at. Um, yeah. And and yeah. I think the same is true with a, a pathologist, like a dermatopathologist, because um, I had a young woman recently who um, she had had a biopsy that showed telogen effluvium, but then when I looked at her under dermoscopy and I saw a lot of miniaturized hairs, and I found out she had a family history of hair loss, I said you know, I think you probably have early female pattern hair loss. And she wanted me to repeat the biopsy to prove that. And, you know, and, and I tried to explain to her, it all depends on who read the pathology, you know, and, and I was happy to redo the biopsy. But, you know, sometimes you just, you have to kind of go with the most accurate indicators. Yeah. Yep. And also um, looking into the lab uh, results. So to do a hormonal panel and uh, to, do, to look into uh, markers of inflammation possibly and also to, to vitamins and, and, and minerals in, in the body to see there within, um, within range. So I, I, I guess all your patients need to present with, with their labs, right? So it's interesting because you know we do a pretty comprehensive reproductive history on women. So, mm -hmm. so first, you know, we just want to know, um, do you still have your lady parts, right? You know, mm -hmm. and if they're premenopausal, we presume they're still menstruating, you know, are their periods very heavy or are they on say birth control that, you know, shortens or lightens their period? Um, you know, and, and so if we know that they're having heavy menses, then, you know, obviously we're going to be very concerned about things like ferritin, which is a measure of the body's iron stores. Um, you know, likewise, you mentioned hormones, you know, if they're um, starting or stopping birth control. Um, I also like to find out what birth control they're taking because, um, you know, every birth control usually has ethanyl estradiol as the estrogen component, but then the um, progestin, you know, depending on which choice um, can have a more and more or less androgenic component. And so the um, birth controls that have things like norethindrone in them, you know, they have that stronger androgenic component. So I try to steer women who maybe have a tendency toward hair thinning to more um, uh, birth controls that have such as, um, and, and I'm not particularly endorsing the brand name, but any generics are fine, either Yaz or Yasmin, because it has uh, drospirinone which has no androgenicity to it at all. So it's the safest for the hair. This is so important. And I, I wanted to thank you because I picked that up from you and your presentation in Bangkok, uh, because female patients do take birth control pills and they, they necessarily blame them for, for hair loss. But you just said not all of them are in that group of uh, high-risk birth control pills causing uh, hair loss. So uh, I, I, I've learned that from, from you to, to ask them which birth control pill they're taking so I can um, guide them to switch or, 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 or not me, but to, to speak to their uh, OB. And, and also birth control pills 
do cause hair loss after their uh, after patients stop them, which is uh, and also another another cause of of, of shedding. Um, what else do you look in 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 the labs of patients? Well. Um, so, so I'm still kind of going along the hormone line that mm -hmm. we were just talking about. There's been a ton of women recently who I've seen, they're getting these testosterone injections and they're getting them like say as pellets and they're being given them for sex drive and energy. And, and these women, they love being on these testosterone pellets. But the problem is they're developing massive hair loss from them. And so that's been another major source of telogen effluvium is these women who are taking testosterone supplementation. And, you know, I, I, I do my best to educate them and try and say, please, you know, if you can get off of this, that would be the best thing. But, you know, so many of the women, they just love the way they feel on it. And they're like, no. <laughs> so that's tough. Yeah. Yeah, to weigh what, what means more to them. Right, exactly. Um, let's see, you were asking about other lab values, is that right? Yeah, vitamin D. Yeah, oh, for sure. So, you know, the normal mm -hmm. cutoff is 30. Have you seen a normal value of vitamin D in your female patient recently? You know, a lot of the women, a lot of women, um, I guess maybe because their doctors are worried about osteoporosis, my, a lot of my postmenopausal women have totally normal vitamin D. And actually, sometimes it's like in the 50s or 60s, you know, because their primary doctor or their OB has them on some kind of vitamin D calcium supplement already. But um, it's my premenopausal females and my women of African descent who will often have low vitamin D levels. You know, and Interesting. yes, and so you know, those are the ones who we try to get supplemented with vitamin D. Um, mm -hmm. What else? Let's see, um, zinc. You know, that's shown up in the literature. I find uh, with COVID, more of my patients are taking zinc just yep. proactively because they've heard it can help prevent infection. Um, so I haven't seen as many like low levels of zinc, but you know, I think yeah. it's sort of one of those things if we can get those levels. Um, propped up a little bit and they can just take zinc over the counter anywhere from yeah. 30 to 50 milligrams but I do yeah. recommend that they take it with food can it, it can make them a little bit nauseous if they try yeah. and take it on an empty stomach yeah so I think these are the the main ones as well I can't think of of the, yeah, any do other do you any check other. an ANA in a lot of your patients I have a basic hormone, basic analyzes and like extended. So I do NAA like as a as extended panel when I add all the micronutrients. I do B12 as uh, vitamin B12 as well, um, but not if I if I only if I think it's necessary. You know, I uh, on a regular like a basic panel I, I don't. I do hormones. I do thyroid hormones. I do um, like inflammation markers like CBC and I do vitamin D, ferritin and iron levels. That's like my basic panel. But then I go into extended when I want to A, when I, when I want to add NAA. Um, so Nicole, I come to you and I said, listen, I had a baby. This thing with my hair doesn't stop. I don't have a family history of hair loss. I have always had a, a, a great hair loss. And what would you tell me to do right now? So. 
Well, I would probably, I would probably just say, you know, give it a tincture of time and, you know, just try to be patient, you know, just trust in the process. You will get your hair back. It's just a matter of time. And, you know, but, but to, you know, probably manage my patient's expectations that it can take a good nine to 12 months, you know, for that hair Mm -hmm. to really get back to maybe where it was before. Um, or longer even, you know, it just depends on, I guess, how long they like to keep their hair. And, and so what their yeah. idea of, you know, full length is that might be, that might vary from person to person. Yeah. I always think that there is a fine line that I'm always trying to, to, to find when to intervene, whether, when not to intervene in terms of, uh, hair therapy for telogen effluvium because by definition it should resolve on its own tell, tell me i'm right <laughs> you know I, th- I think the other thing that we do that is reassuring to our patients is we say come back and see us in another three to six months and, mm-hmm. and then that way they know that they have an appointment out there in the future such that if the hair shedding has not resolved, then, you know, we're going to talk about it and we're going to do a little bit deeper digging if we need to, or we're going to talk about maybe doing some kind of medical therapy to help them maybe stop the shedding, or maybe we'll even do a biopsy, you know, um, because they may say, well, it's still shedding and now it's kind of tender. You know, could it be an early evolving cicatricial alopecia, you know, and so it may be worth doing a little bit more workup, you know. I think a lot of times where people get frustrated is they feel like they get dismissed too easily. And like you said, you know, because telogen effluvium does sometimes run with other forms of alopecia, we just have to always be on the lookout for that. And, yep. you know, we, we have to tell our patients, you know, I had a, a dermatology colleague, he, he used this expression that sometimes it's like a Polaroid picture, you know, it takes a little time for the actual, you know, grains of the image to like come together. And, and so yep. that, you know, we can actually tell what's exactly happening, but it, it yep. takes time. And if you, and if, if you are to suggest therapy what are those that you would use and if there are some that you wouldn't what would those be Mm -hmm. well you know the only female the only the only medical therapy that is fda approved for female pattern hair loss is topical minoxidil the problem is that it's not approved during pregnancy or lactation and so you know to avoid the risk of having say furry babies you know, I would probably tell my females not to try and incorporate that until they were, say, done, you know, breastfeeding at least. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, something like low-level light therapy, which is FDA cleared as a medical device, that is very safe in pregnancy. Um, and, it, you know, I don't know why they couldn't use it also during breastfeeding. I think it would be fine, you know, to use something like that. To I'll tell you, it's just fine. <laughs> Have you been using it? I just started, yes. Okay. So I I started my natural uh, vitamin course uh, because, you know, because of the reasons you're telling me, I can't do anything because of baby, of the baby, but I I, I did start vitamins and laser. 
that's what I decided to do. So we'll see. <laughs> well, I hope I hope your shedding slows down soon for your for your for your for your part. Uh, for your hair part and for your sanity, more, more importantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, is there any therapy that you wouldn't use? I I'm asking you uh, because um, this is my opinion. I, um, I see that scalp that is actively shedding as a, as a volcano. Like, I am so opposed to anything invasive on the scalp during the active shedding because you don't know what's going to be the outcome of the therapy. That's why I'm concerned to inject anything, to be honest with you, during the active phase of shedding. I'm more like you. I would go with the lotion to slow it down, to stabilize it, and then maybe start injecting. What are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, it's funny. I feel like a lot of our... Um some of my um, so, some of the doctors, the dermatologists who you know came before me and who have trained me over the years, they have historically used intralesional triamcinolone injections either for hair shedding or for female pattern hair loss. And just in looking at the literature, I've never seen any data to really support that. But I think if you're also possibly suspecting, you know, an, an early inflammatory process, I think sometimes it's worth a try. Maybe not using steroid injections, but sometimes I'll recommend like clobetazole shampoo, you know, if they maybe have some trace inflammatory process going on. And then, mm -hmm. you know, they, they may say, oh, yes, it helped. Or they may say, no, it doesn't. I mean, it's just, it's kind of a gamble. You just... I don't, I don't really think anything that we recommend is necessarily going to work. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think of doing PRP for, for hair loss in that active phase? I mean, I have not, I, I have not seen it work to help really slow down the hair shedding. I don't, I don't Me really, either. I don't, I, f I really don't even recommend it just because, you know, I, I just ethically, I just don't really feel like that's the right treatment. I'm just asking you because for some reason a lot of my female patients they see the, the holy grail in, in PRP therapy that's gonna just do wonders but it doesn't happen and they keep injecting it and many of those PRPs have pro-inflammatory uh, uh, effect which can worsen the condition. It's not just pure you know, platelets and all, oh, let's inject it. But some of the, there is impurity there and many comes with neutrophils that's gonna worsen the condition and, and they, they don't know that. That's why I'm glad we share the view how that's not the, the rescue plan. Yeah, now I know um, Dr. Kuka Epstein that you do a lot with fat research and have you ever seen any data showing that um, there's a role in using fat cells to possibly treat telogen effluvium? I, I ne never dared because injections are so invasive and I never dared. I, maybe I should, but I was just concerned that it's too invasive to to inject because it's not like PRP is injected with, with the needles. This is cannulas. 
that I go under the surface of the scalp and I, I just thought it was too invasive, so I, I, I haven't, haven't really tried. <laughs> You, you know where would probably be an interesting area, and this could be a future research project for, I guess, any ambitious dermatology resident is looking at cold cap technology. You know how they're using that for, um, you know, preventing hair loss due to chemotherapy like the antigen effluvium. Maybe that's, yep. some, maybe that's something that pregnant women could use like shortly after delivery. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I know I, when we were getting ready for this, for this interview, I, t I shared with you that shedding after a girl is <laughs> heavier than shedding after having a boy, at least in my case. So that's going to be my next study. I'm going to retrospectively interview my patients to see whether whether that girl takes more hair of, out of her mother <laughs> than boys. So we'll we'll. Uh... We'll see. And we'll then, see. And then you have to look at the amount of hair lost on the father because, you know, sometimes you may lose the hair at the beginning, but he may lose the hair. He may lose more of his hair later as she becomes a teenager and starts dating. <laughs> you never know. That's a good point. We'll see. Maybe at, at the end we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be even in, in, in the amount of hair loss. And especially if she's as beautiful as you are, he's going to have a lot of headaches. <laughs> I have a good friend with two daughters who told me that once, once her daughters uh, enter teenage years, he's going to put brace on them on their teeth, so they're going to they, that that's going to keep the boys away. I don't know if that if that's going to work at least for a year or two. Um, I'd like to thank you for this conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and um, I'm hope I'm hoping I know our listeners are going to enjoy it as well and learn a lot uh, what to do and how a consultation for female hair loss should look like. Uh, and many doctors, of course, uh, will hear uh, valuable information. So thank you so much for your time on a Saturday. Uh, to be able to to join us at on, on at hair on hair on air. Well, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much for this invitation. Thank you, Nicole.